One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, everybody. Before we get into the podcast, there, just to let you know, we are back in Cork's Opera House on August the 22nd to open the Cork Podcast Festival. Which is an absolute honour. And myself and James are thrilled to be a part of such a great night, particularly when you have so many fantastic podcasts coming from Cork on the night and the week as well. Yeah, no, listen, it's great to be part of the podcast scene. And we have a great guest on the night too, a friend of ours, Brezzy, a mental health advocate who's got a great story. Among other things, he's uh, played Munster or uh, rugby with Leinster and he had a panic attack live on TV and he does his own show now around his own journey. So uh, it's going to be powerful. Yeah, he's just going to talk about his story growing up and when it all started for him in relation to his mental health and how he came through it and what he does today around it. No, he does a lot of work within schools today and helps children to be able to cope much, much better with their own mental health and he creates programs and stuff like that and he does a lot of funding. So it should be a fantastic night. Yeah, we'll have a bit of entertainment, a bit of music and a bit of a crack as well. So I hope to see you there August the 22nd. Tickets available at Ticketmaster.ie or Cock Opera House box office. Thank you and enjoy the podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Two Narries podcast. I am your host, James Ennard, joined as always by my good friend, Timmy Long. Hi, everyone. Our guest this evening is Dr. Sinead Kane from Yall. And you have a first list of achievements, including two Guinness World Records, a couple of PhDs, and you do a bit of uh, keynote speaking and stuff like that as well. Thanks very much for having me on the podcast. Yeah, and you have a visual impairment also. Yeah, I'm visually impaired, registered as blind, just 5% vision. Were you born like that? Yeah, congenital. So everybody in my family are visually impaired. Oh, really? So if if you it's in the genes, is it a guarantee that the offspring get it? Or? Um, well, my sister has a child and um, she doesn't have the vision impairment, so it can skip a generation. Interesting. And how much can you see? Um, so I suppose a lot of people think about blindness as in darkness. So I think that's a misconception. So a lot of my problem is I take in too much light. So if you can imagine the full headlights of a car yeah. coming at you with the full headlights on, it's very dazzling on the eyes. So mm. that's a lot of my problem. So I have aniridia, coloboma, nystagmus and glaucoma. So... Um, aniridia is where like you take in too much light um, coloboma is a part missing of the eye the part missing of my eye is the iris the nystagmus is shaking of the eyes and the glaucoma is high pressure so 
because I don't because the iris is the coloured part of your eye, so yeah. I can't see the colours of your eyes. Um, so the iris is the blue, the brown, or the green. So if you take off that colour part of your eye, then because like it's the pupil, the black in yeah. the centre of the eye that takes the light in. But if you take off the coloured part of the eye, then you're taking light through the whole eye. Yeah. Um, so that's what it's kind of like for me. And so have you just got pupils? So I don't really, actually, my pupil isn't really defined, as in my eyes are black. Everybody thinks yeah. my eyes are um, dark brown, but they're actually black. So I take light through the whole eye. So it's like an open camera lens all the time. Mm. So light, like I suffer badly with the light. Like when I'm looking at the light, it's like as if there's kind of arrows sticking out of the light. Or if I'm looking at the light in 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 the house in um, where I'm from or any kind of lights it's like there's all rays sticking out of the light it's like do you know if, but uh, I, I know that there's no rays like, do you know if uh, somebody that doesn't have a visual impairment walks into a dark room and then the, the pupils open up to try and take yeah, in more light that's probably it but it's like you but you have that all the time yeah so you're taking in too much light all the time so like say for example during my college days I would have went out at night time as students do, and I'd go towards the the bar, the door to get in, and I would have often been stopped by bouncers. One bouncer actually said to me, "Sorry, we don't take anybody here on e-tablets." Because mm. um, it's the same thing that happens. Yeah, so <laughs> like um, they would directly say that out, and I suppose it was embarrassing yeah. in front of my friends, but my friends would have known. That, okay, she doesn't take drugs or anything like that, but it was still embarrassing. And <clears throat> there was one particular nightclub in the city where I tried to get in and they basically said, oh, no, like you're on drugs and all this. And I just said, oh, is can you just clarify for me? Being a law student, I was like, can you, can you just clarify that you're stopping me based on my eyes? Yeah. And they were saying, oh, yeah, well, it's because you're eyes are dilated so I said thank you very much I had witnesses the following day wrote a letter to the management I was stopped based on my eyes this is not good enough um, I'll take legal action against your uh, organisation or company um, but anyway they they did send out an apology to me sent out loads of free passes but I didn't go back to that establishment again mm. but it just shows like I suppose the barriers that you can experience as a person with a disability, the assumption that is made because for them, I don't know, would they have stopped me so quickly had I had out my white cane, had I had on yeah. my black shaded sunglasses. Yeah, yeah, now, yeah. I was linking my friends. Now, I know they have a job to do and they're there to like, obviously prevent um I suppose, arguments in, in their establishment. But like if I say to them, oh, I've anorrhea, coloboma, nystagmus and glaucoma and start going into detail about my eye conditions, I think it's fairly reliable that I know what I'm talking about in yeah. terms of being visually impaired. So I suppose that would be a memory for me from my college days, yeah. a memory from my younger years of my visual impairment would always be going for and I check up every, say, three to six months. And I remember going up to the hospital and like you'd be sitting and you'd be told by the nurse to read the chart. And I'd always watch these other kids um, get a lollipop if they got down to the end of the chart. And I always thought to myself, well, like, this is completely unfair because 
I'm born vision impaired. I'm never going to get down to the end of the chart. Um, I could always only see the first letter on the chart. So I kind of started saying to myself, OK, what I'll do is I'll tell the child beside me to go first and then I'll just quickly memorise what they say <laughs> and then then tell the nurse that I want to do my turn. So that's what I kind of started doing, like I would um, memorise what the other child said and then tell the nurse I wanted to go ahead and call out and then she'd be like, OK, this child got down as far as the end of the chart and then the doctor would be completely confused and then he'd make me kind of go through the chart in his room and then I wouldn't be able to see the chart in his room and then he'd realise, OK, this child obviously was copying other kids. No lollipop. Yeah, no lollipop. So <laughs> I just thought it was a very unfair system. Absolutely. Um, and I spoke up and I told the doctors and I told the nurses this is kind of discrimination against me as a child. So I suppose like there's always different barriers all throughout my life that I've experienced. But I think that you can be a role model and kind of be an advocate. And like, I suppose back then, I told the doctors, well, why can't I have the lollipop? Um, and I suppose it's only by speaking out or it's only by putting people, organisations or companies in their place by saying like, OK, well, why did you stop me based on my eyes? Um, and just being an advocate for yourself and using your voice wisely. Mm -hmm. Like my sister has a visual impairment as well. She uses a guide dog and she would go around the city and there's particular traffic lights around Cork City that are never, ever working. And like herself and other guide dog owners have experienced it as well, as well where they've contacted different relevant people to try and get these traffic lights working because like a traffic light working mightn't be a big deal to a fully sighted person. Mm. But to a visually impaired person, it is a huge deal because of their safety. Yeah, you you were unbelievably intelligent from a young child. You know, it, it, like most kids wouldn't be able to remember anything like that. You know, the chart being able to remember what the the young person before you is after saying in the chart, like. We a very, very smart child inside in school or was your impairment an issue in relation to learning as well? Well, I think that there's two types of people. One type of person is a person in flow and another type of person is a grafter. Yeah. And I'm definitely a grafter. I'm not a person in flow. It doesn't all come naturally to me. I have to put in the hard work. Um, so in school, in primary school, secondary school, I would have struggled. Like, for example, say when I was reading my book, um, when you're reading it with a magnifying glass, depending on how big the magnifying glass is, like you might end up reading the sentence slower mm. compared to if it's in very large font. So when I would be trying to read with a very tiny magnifying glass, I would be reading slower. And so then they were kind of questioning, um, say, they'd be questioning, OK, well, um, does this girl have an intellectual disability as well as a visual impairment? Yeah. But they weren't taking account of, OK, if this is in large print, she can easily read it, no problem. Um, so, yeah, so coming back to your question, um, was, was I a very intelligent child? No, I worked very hard. There were stages where they thought that I had an intellectual disability. I was always the only child walking up and down to the blackboard to see what was on the blackboard. Um, 
was always the only child having black shaded sunglasses on in school or the white cane. My experience of school isn't a happy memory for me. Were you bullied? Yeah, badly bullied, yeah. Oh, yeah. Very badly bullied. Um, and I suppose kind of that did have a drastic effect on my mental health. Mm-hmm. Um, back then, I think people have coping mechanisms, positive and negative, and I suppose I just went into the coping mechanism of I don't want to go to school. Yeah. And what way can I not go to school? Okay, if I say I'm sick, then... I won't have to go to school. But like, I suppose then you have to be sick because you can't just keep saying, oh, I'm sick, I'm sick, I'm sick. So you actually have to be sick. So I kind of would sometimes just, um, I suppose, make myself weak by um, just not eating or um, that type of way. And I suppose, yeah, energy levels wouldn't be there. Did you develop an eating disorder on your teens or anything like that? Um, Yeah, so I suppose for me, that's, uh, yeah, I suppose kind of, I don't know how you want to label it, but I suppose for me, I just don't, um, yeah, I had issues with food. That's the way I would like to say it. So, yeah. What what, what about your teens then? Like with, um, let's say, 16, 17-year-olds out socialising, maybe going to clubs or going with boys or girls or whatever. Was that difficult for you? So, I suppose, like, in primary school and secondary school, I was the type of child who was, I don't know, I just was an awkward child. I was very shy. I just felt, I don't know, in school that like, say in PE, any time a team was being picked for PE, I was always the last child to be picked onto the team. And when the team did pick me, they didn't want me on their team anyway. So, um, and then outside of school, I would always remember just never having actually a particular set group of friends. Um, I would always kind of float between friends and just never really felt belonged to any particular mm. group. And I suppose growing up, like I never, um, I don't know, like I never got into drink or drugs or anything like that. And, um, I don't know, I just kept myself to myself and I would have went to maybe discos with my sister or anything. Um, but I don't really, wouldn't have kind of socialised with people from my school as much. And I suppose, like, looking back, I wonder to myself, what if, like, if people did accept me, um, would I have had a more a better childhood or whatever? Like, because, like, some people talk about, oh, like we'd get cans and we'd go behind the back of a shade and go drinking or whatever. And I never, ever had that. And I kind of wondered to myself, oh, like, did I miss out by not being able to do that? Yeah. Did yeah. you ever go to Gigi's in the hilltop? Yeah, I did, yeah. Was so you know, disco back in the day, do you remember that? Yeah, yeah, that was a wild old place, yeah. yeah. so I suppose just to let listeners yeah. know I'm from y'all. Yeah, yeah, So yeah. would you have went down to y'all? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I was telling uh, Sinead before, like y'all is like Santa Panza for Nari's back in the day. It was too, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I had a few great down there in I, June I, to come I, home. I had a few mad up. nights down y'all. But um, there was just... One thing I was going to say to you in relation to the way you felt as a young child, you know, um, in, in social contexts with people not being able to make relationships work or our friends and stuff like that. Um, is that the same today? 
Is, is that I, kind of social anxiety, is that the same today? Are you much more open or did you do some work on yourself around that stuff? I think I'm a lot more confident now as a person. Um, and I think I'm kind of at the stage in life where, do you know what, I really don't care what you think of me, that type of individual. Um, and I don't crave this desire to be part of a group anymore. Um, like I always thought to myself, OK, well, if I change myself, that group will accept me. So I need to change. Um, I don't really crave that now anymore. But I suppose from my childhood, what I would have found is that trust is a huge issue for me regarding forming friendships. I find it very difficult um, to trust people and let that guard down. Like have you been hurt before by somebody? Um, well, I suppose just the bullying that I experienced yeah, yeah. in primary school and secondary school, then yeah. that... It forms your worldview. Yeah. That pe so, pe people can be bad. Yeah, so like I suppose it's just kind of... I remember times when I was younger that kids would say that they're going to invite me to um, parties or um, Halloween parties and then they they wouldn't turn up or something like that and I suppose that trust then is kind of mm. gone um, yeah. that stuff really hurts a child doesn't it it really really hurts a child I would have had a similar kind of upbringing to myself um, you know no I wouldn't have been I had the same kind of uh, I don't know what you call it is it a disability or yeah it's a disability it, yeah it? I wouldn't have but where I grew up and and the the environment I grew up in, it was really difficult. So I, I can completely relate um, to, to your story as a young child because I really didn't fit in. Relationships were very, very difficult. I had no confidence. I had no self-esteem. You know, um, I was because of the way I looked and, and, and all these other things. And um, it can be really, really tough. That stuff can be really, really tough for a child. And when GM said there, well, I go in relation to the the addiction, did you end up going down the drink and drugs route? You know, a lot of people who do have those kind of lifestyles as a young child, um, they do go down that route because what they seem to happen is later on in life when they go down that route of drinking drugs, the things that they don't have, the confidence, the self-esteem, you know, the ability to be around others and to be able to talk comes from the alcohol and drugs it doesn't, it never came for me unless I had the drinking drugs in, in my system. And when that happened, it was like, oh my God. It was like, it was like someone was just after open Pandora's box for me. Mm -hmm. It was the best thing ever. And it kind of escalated then into just complete madness. And that happens with a lot of people. Yeah, know? I don't know. Maybe I might have went down the route of alcohol had I been invited yeah. to parties or whatever but I just never was so um, I would have been at home a lot and in my household like there was never any drink like my dad doesn't drink or my parents don't drink or my sister wouldn't really drink either so there was never really drink in the house so I don't know I suppose you Maybe had yeah. I been invited to parties, I might have. But like, I just, as I say, I just kind of have those experiences, kind of like, say, even with my debts, um, yeah. I don't feel that I actually had that experience of a debts of what other people had. Because yeah. like, um, even the guy that I went with, he just kind of went just to show 
for a photograph yeah. and then he left. So, yeah. Um, yeah. And then, like, kind of even, as I say, just the one or two people that I was hanging around with at that time, I just still didn't feel part of their group. So, again, I left my Debs early and all that. Mm. So, um did you have the support of of your sister and and what parent was visually impaired? Oh, uh, both my parents are visually impaired, and my sister. Yeah, so like I suppose I would have had a lot of support from my sister, and mm. we would have been kind of she would have experienced, um, like she would experience disability differently to me. Like I think the important thing when we started off this conversation about disability is. Um, what like tell us about your disability and I started explaining yeah. about my vision impairment but everybody I'm only one person talking about disability you could have another guest in who's visually impaired and they might have a completely different experience than me like so yeah. um I think that that's important so like myself and my sister would have had commonalities regarding the vision impairment but we do also would have had differences as well um i suppose like looking back on my childhood as well like a lot of teenagers learn to drive um some teenagers might go off and not learn to drive but they don't or drive think. cows they shouldn't be yeah so again <laughs> um again i would have never kind of experienced that and i kind of say to myself okay well have i missed out there yeah. so i was having a conversation with a friend back in maybe my early 30s um about how i kind of felt that i kind of had missed out on that as a teenager and even kind of the fact of being visually impaired i'll never be able to drive um well I can drive, but I'm not allowed the license, so I should clarify that. Mm. Um, so he said to me, OK, well, look, you hold tight and I'm going to do something for you tonight. So I was like, OK, what the hell? Uh, what's going to be happening? So we went down to Little Island at midnight and we went into this car park that was completely empty. And he said, OK, I want you to get out of the car now and I want you to drive around this car park. I was like, OK, this could go very badly, like your car could actually get <laughs> very badly damaged. So anyway, um, I got into the car and we were going around and around and around this car park. And I'd say anybody who passed the car park probably was thinking, what is going on with that <laughs> car? So, um, yeah, so I suppose that was just his way of trying yeah. to make me feel um happy about myself and then we came back up to Cork City we went to North Main Street we got a pizza and then the following morning I ended up um, with food poisoning from the pizza and then I didn't contact him because I was sick and then he thought that he'd done something wrong and yeah so it, it was, was it meant to be <laughs> that's the way you have to look at it oh so, yeah so it, it was good night and uh, yeah so that's kind of I think it's nice to try and put yourself in the shoes uh, like because I when he got into the dry or into the passenger seat mm -hmm. I said are you sure maybe you don't want to actually just get out just in case something happens and he was like no I trust you and um, I was like okay like this is a huge amount of trust now yeah. so um, sounds like a nice old fella yeah, yeah. so, uh, so the, you have two world records for long distance running yeah was sport always like an outlet for you as a kid or was there something that you no. got into later in life so I didn't take up running until age 30 so I suppose um, a message that I'd like to send out to anybody is if you can't can't think that you can't do something. Um, I never thought I'd end up 
running in the Irish singlet representing Ireland but I have and I only took up running at age 30 because I was asked to do a 10k for Child Vision National Education Centre for blind and visually impaired children so they asked me to do a 10k the women's mini marathon in June 2012 and um, I set myself eight weeks of training at the start I found it difficult to find a running guide but I found a running guide and um so I did eight weeks training, set myself two uh, goals to do it under an hour and I did it in 55 minutes and then to raise over 2,000 euros for Child Vision and I did that. And um, so I, once I did that 10K, then like that summer, I just said to myself, OK, my confidence has grown now. Um, I'd like to join a running club. So I joined a running club and when I went into this running club, they were like, don't run on the road with the other athletes in case you fall or don't run around the track faster than eight minute miling in case you fall. And I just kind of felt like a caged animal. Yeah. Um, and that goes against my personal values and my professional values of wanting to grow. So I left that running club. I was out of running for a while. And um, yeah, I was out of running for a while. And then I um, decided, oh, I'll do a half marathon in June 2014. In So the Cork half marathon, June 2014, did that. And at the end of the half marathon, I was saying to myself, geez, that was like not easy but like More that was very other. manageable yeah. and uh, so then I said to myself okay that I was going to do full marathon in July 2014 I set myself about doing the Dublin marathon for October 2014 and at that time I was doing a lot of um voluntary work with Childline so um the crowd that answers the, the ISPCC and uh so yeah so I said to myself okay I should get a running guide no problem because like blind girl doing it for charity loads of people come forward nobody came forward so I was kind of like that kind of upset me in a way so you need like, somebody to run alongside you yeah so that kind of upset me in a way because there's so many running clubs around Cork City and yet nobody came forward or even Cork County yeah. um, so then I just put out this tweet at the end of July 2014 that blind girl wants to do it for charity she can't find a running guide so I'm not going to be able to do it so then a guy in Dublin came forward and he said I'll run with you so I was traveling up on a train for three hours to do a two-hour run to then travel back down the train for three hours so I was on a train for six hours mm. to do a two-hour run so anybody who kind of takes their sight for granted or whatever needs to reassess their goals yeah. so like it's how badly you want your goals and I suppose I badly wanted to do this Dublin marathon so that's why I went to the effort of going that length to go up on the train and I suppose I saw a bigger purpose than me it wasn't all about Sinead doing the marathon it was about raising money for Childline so the bigger purpose so that's why I was willing to sacrifice my own time to go up and down on the train did you sorry James I was just going to ask you um, did you go to college after school yeah so when I was 17 I approached my careers advisor teacher and I told her I wanted to study law and her attitude it was a reading based subject you'll never be able for it there's no point doing it so I said thank you very much for that information I left um both school that time and went home and researched all about where can I study law and I suppose what I had to do also was to see which college would have the best disability services. It wasn't just, OK, which college would have the best law services. It was 
disability had to be taken into account. So thankfully for me, it was UCC out of all the colleges in Ireland. So UCC was the best and um, just went to UCC then. And I said to myself, OK, I'm going to prove this careers advisor teacher wrong. And um, first year, I just I just felt like imposter syndrome because I remember the first day of my first class sat down beside these two girls and like they were like saying, I said to them, oh, when did you want to start studying law? And they were like, oh, since I was eight or nine, uh, my parents are barristers and this, that and the other. And here's me coming like from a background of nobody's in the legal profession in my. So I kind of felt like very much an imposter and like some of them, the way the the accents of some of them just wasn't like my y'all accent. Yeah. Um, and so I suppose first year was hard. Reading all the textbooks was quite difficult. I'd get pains in my eyes, pains in my wrist, pains in my lower back the whole time. And um, so, yeah. And then uh, like, again, I had to say to myself, OK, how can I get through this course? And how you get through the courses, you had to make sacrifices. So like because my eyes would get sore quite easily, I would spread out my reading. So I would do some reading in the morning, some reading in the evening. But by doing my reading in the evening, then I won't be able to go out socialising like all other students. Yeah. So again, the disability was kind of impacting me. So um so I, I, again, I felt that I wasn't getting the full college experience as others. And then I went from a situation of in school getting hardly any um, supports to then in college getting loads of supports. And at the time I was thinking to myself, OK, this is absolutely fantastic. But then by second and third year, I was kind of copping on saying to myself, OK, Sinead, like when you go into the big bad world, like you're not going to have all these supports. Um, so you're going to get a shock if you're going to be leaning on all these supports too much. So you kind of need to empower yourself to. So like, say, when I read a law textbook um, in solicitor's offices, they use dictaphones. Yeah. Um, well, back then, and anyway, I don't know how it is now with technology and everything. They do actually. So yeah. I would have um, said my note rather than write out my notes. I would have said my notes into the dictaphone. Then I would have played the dictaphone back to myself and listened. And I absolutely hate hearing the sound of my voice, but I had to listen to this dictaphone. Um, so yeah, so uh, your question was, did I go off to college? So I did. And in second year then I decided, OK, I was giving it up. It was too difficult. So I uh, said to my parents, I was giving it up. And they said, oh, um, that's fine. And I was kind of getting a bit, say, why are you saying this is fine? Like you're meant to kind of get a bit annoyed yeah. that I'm giving up. This is how it works in the movies. Yeah. And uh, so they said, no, if you're an adult now. You have to take responsibility. If this is a mistake, you have to take it on. So um, they said, we go to London for a shopping trip. And I thought to myself, OK, this is a great reward for giving up. We went to London. We didn't go shopping. We went to Chancery Lane and uh, we met a judge who was totally blind. And he became a role model to me. And I discussed everything with him about law uh, or everything other than law. Yeah. And I came back full of confidence, got my law degree, got my master's in law, well qualified as a solicitor. So I suppose in life, I think you have to have role models. Yeah. Like if I was to say to you there, like who would be a role model to you? A role model to me? Yeah. Um, I suppose my wife, Gillian. Yeah. When she came into my life at the right time, somebody I could relate with, that was a bit further down the line, like that judge with you, that was in a similar field that I wanted to be in, and that had kind of gone the path before me, 
that I could use for counsel to kind of guide me along the way and encourage me as I went down that path, you know. So I prob- probably my wife is the first one that comes to mind, right, due to him. Um, probably Donald. You know, Donald would have been somebody I met in, in treatment early on and he had a similar story to me. And after hearing his story, I, I understood that it was possible to have recovery in my life and that I could do it as well. And he definitely inspired me to keep going, keep going. And um, today, you know, we're good friends. And um, it's like I've, I'm have i after hitting the place that he was back then when I was in treatment. You know, so I've, I'm in that place. And um, definitely without that role model at the beginning, I'd say I would have been a little bit lost. Mm-hmm. So it definitely helped me. I think we can all be role models to our thoughts, our actions and our behaviours mm. every day. And like you were asking me there, when did I start running? Did I do it from mm. a very young age? And I didn't start it until 30. Mm. And like even with yourselves there now, you've taken on the podcast later in life. You weren't doing a podcast when you were young, but you're doing it now later in life. And I think that kind of we can all be role models you're showing being role models you're showing leadership through that yeah it's true isn't it and you can be your own advocate and your own leader and your own family it doesn't have to be like world records like what you're doing and you know lecturing in UCC I I think that leadership is when you bring people along with you and I also think that leadership is an act not a position so for me leadership isn't about titles or anything like that it's how you act on a daily basis and especially how you act when nobody is looking because a lot of people would say to me oh like how have you gained success or Mm. how have you got your goals or and for me success is what you do in private when nobody's looking like for example are you willing to help the person a person on a street when nobody's looking are you willing to do it when there's a big crowd standing there mm. um, or like for example with me with the running like you need protein to help build muscle yeah. and repair so like I can tell people oh I eat loads of protein but like am I actually doing it in private yeah. Um, so yeah and but, some, sometimes yeah. the people in the leadership positions are the worst leaders so it's true what you're saying, just because somebody's in the position, that doesn't make a great leader. Yeah. And sometimes the staff of that leader might have more leadership qualities than them by how they conduct their behaviour and their professionalism and stuff like that. Yeah, I think as well it comes down to as well about empathy and emotional intelligence. And like even after I qualified as a solicitor, I remember that um, I went to, um, I knew some prison officers in Mount Joy and I said oh would you mind if I had a tour of Mount Joy so I was brought to Mount Joy and um, the prisoners were in their cells the doors were locked and I remember walking in and walking down and like they were all jeering and that for me was extremely intimidating and um, so anyway then we got down to a cell and there was one guy outside and he was, I don't know, he was doing sweeping anyway or something. And I said to the prison officer who was in myself and two people that I brought with me, um, I said to the prison officer, look, would you mind if I actually go into that prisoner's cell? So he asked the prisoner, would the prisoner mind? And um, he said, OK, no problem. So I went into the cell and then I asked the prison officer, like, would you mind actually locking the door? Um, and the reason why I did that was because, um, I don't know, I just wanted to experience what it's like to be in prison just to try and 
get a sense, a feel for it. Um, and then came out. feel like you feel? Um, well, uh, uh, I, I have a fear now of small spaces. It's very small, isn't it? Um, yeah, so I think there's two standout moments. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. For me, that has made me have a fear of small spaces. Like, I don't like going into lifts or anything. Like, if you're going to the seventh floor, I'd actually prefer to walk the stairs. Yeah, seven <laughs> floor, yeah. And then take the lift, like, but um, a second incident of where they, a small space was that I had been to Antarctica with the World Marathon Challenge. And when I came back from that, I wanted to kind of experience, just go back to that memory. And I remember I went into this amusement place that had this cylinder where it was like a computer game and you stand into the cylinder and it blowed a load of um, wind and all this. So I was in this cylinder and then the door closed and the wind was like, really strong and I just got claustrophobic in there mm. and I started panicking and I wanted to get out so they're the two standout memories for me mm. of um, dealing with kind of small spaces but as I say I just feel kind of a lot of people don't put themselves into other people's shoes and um, yeah so that was one of my experiences of mm. kind of encountering um, the prison and then I went to the women's prison and uh I found that the women's prison was quite different to the men's prison. Way, way different, isn't it? Yeah. And um, I remember I was told, don't talk to the prisoners now. If anybody talks to you, don't talk to them. So this girl then started talking to me and I was like, oh, she's going to be very rude now if yeah, I don't yeah. talk back to her. So I just talked back to her. Yeah, um, and again, just very nice person. And I kind of think people think, oh, prisoner, they're not nice people. But yeah. I think that maybe just you just have to talk to people. And, yeah. and then as I was training as a solicitor, I would have um, um, encountered prisoners through my solicitor traineeship. I would have went up to Cork Prison and like the two areas that I was dealing with as a trainee solicitor was family law and criminal law. And family law, what I found is that like 
the client will come in and they'll talk, 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 talk. And you just actually have to get to the point where, okay, stop talking now. Yeah. I'll tell you about the law now. Mm. And then the um, criminal area, you'd go to prison and you'd ask the uh, the client a question. Yes, no, mm. and there's no talk. So like it's the opposite, opposite the extreme. Like so I suppose they would have been my um, experiences. And I always used to wonder like, oh, will the client feel that um, their case is being jeopardised by me as a solicitor with a disability? Because I think there's a lot of, and not just even clients, there's a lot of society that has negative attitudes towards people with disabilities. Yeah. Like I've had people say to me in the past, okay, what course are you doing? And then you explain, okay, well, I'm I'm qualified at X, Y, Z. And they'd be like, oh, really, really? So they kind of talk to you one way um, mm. just because you have a disability. I think there's this negative attitude there. Yeah, the thing was, the thing was, uh the difference between family law and how they speak and criminal law. You see, when it's when it's involved with crime, the least you say, the better. Yeah. And sometimes mm -hmm. you say nothing at all, you're better off. Mm -hmm. So that that's in you, like yeah, yeah, from a young age. Like yeah. it doesn't matter if you're talking to the solicitor or the girls. When people are asking questions, you just say nothing. No comment, no comment until, you know, you get to be your solicitor and you trust your solicitor in. And even at that then you're kind of telling them in a roundabout way, you know. There's always, like, um, people don't understand that inside in courthouses, they all mingle together. Solicitors, judges, guards, you know, so you're just a client as is and your, your solicitor's always going to look out for you. But, like, for people that are in prison... The only people that they think are going to look out for them are the people that they come from the streets with. Them too, you know, it's, yeah. it's such a kind of twist around. But yeah, but Sinead, um, so you went on to be a solicitor, yeah? Yeah, we so I found it very difficult then to get a job as a solicitor. But okay. you see, during my traineeship, um, I qualified in April 2009. Mm. That was the year of the recession. Mm. So I was with the Legal Aid Board, which is a public state body, and the embargo came in. So anybody on a temporary contract couldn't have their contract renewed because there was this embargo in the public state. So, um, so I didn't have my contract renewed. Another solicitor, she didn't have her contract renewed. And so I was kind of saying to myself, okay, what am I going to do myself now? So um, I badly wanted a job as a solicitor. So I was finding that I was putting out a load of um, applications and I go for interview. And when they see the white, uh, the white stick and black shaded sunglasses, just I had this sixth sense that, okay, they... There was a different tone in the room. Um, and yeah, so I just said, OK, I'll apply to Law Firm Commission. So I applied to them. They gave me a job, but it was a voluntary contract. So I was doing the exact same job as a paid person, but I wasn't being paid. And I knew that if I had them on my CV, that they're a prestigious body, mm. that that would be a good route to getting a job as a solicitor. So I had to say to myself, OK, how badly do you want your goals? So... They were based in Dublin. I wasn't going to be paid. It was a full day, like nine to half five. So what I did was I decided, okay, 
I'm not going to be couch surfing for six months um, and I won't have any money to be staying in B&Bs and hotels and all of this. So every morning I got up at 4am, got the five o'clock train to Dublin, got to Dublin at 8am, got a bus out to Ballsbridge, was out there for half eight, started work at nine, uh, finished at half five, got a bus into Houston station, got the train back to Cork at seven o'clock, was back in Cork at 10 o'clock and then got a taxi home for half ten. And then up to bed by 11 and back up in the following morning at four o'clock. How long so did you do that for? Six months. Jesus from the April to the October. There's, so, there's absolute motivation and strength. Fair, and absolutely like, fair play. So well, stuff you've, you've had it and it didn't come easy to you, sure it didn't? Yeah, so while I was doing that anyway, there was a guy there and he said, um, oh, I see you have a talent there for criminal law. Would you like to submit an article to the Irish Criminal Law Journal? So I thought anyway that this was only going to be one article. So I submitted the article anyway and that was back in 2010. And like... 13 years later now, I'm still writing for the Irish Criminal Law Journal. So, um, did, did, did people, because of what you were doing there just to get to work in Dublin every single morning coming home, did, did the people around you, maybe some of the higher up solicitors or the people who owned the company, not look at that and say, like, this, this girl is unreal? So I suppose like at the end, at the end, like of that contract, then um, I could have applied there to for a paid contract. But then I just didn't like Dublin. I don't know. I've worked up there now a few times and I just cannot take to the place. Um, Maybe it's just the cork in me that I just. Too big, too busy, the hustle and bustle, traffic, too many people. I then the following year, then I went to the um, public expenditure and reform in the Department of Per Public Expenditure Reform, and I was working as a legal researcher in there. And then the following year, then in 2012, I said to myself, okay, there needs to be more accessibility and there needs to be more openness in the legal profession about people with disabilities. So I um, approached the Law Society and I was asking them to put on a conference about disability and legal professionals and the law and all this and um, they just for whatever reason didn't want to do it. Um, They just yeah just wasn't going to work out for them and then approached Bar Council of Ireland and again similar roadblocks didn't get through with it. So I said to myself okay well this is fine if they don't want, if they're not able to do it, that's fine. But I'm not going to give up here. Like, I'm not that person. I'll just get knocked down and I'll get back up again. So then I contacted the International Bar um, Council. And luckily for me, that year in 2012, they were doing their um, event in Dublin. So um, normally it's other places around the world, but it was in Dublin that year. So I contacted them. They said, OK, no problem. If you want to do an event all about disability in the law and legal professionals, no problem, you can do it, but you have to do all the the organising. So for six months, I did all this organising for this event at this um, International Bar Council. And um, one of the people on 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 the panel was going to be this judge who was totally blind. And then, of course, the event was go ahead in September 2012 and then in the July 2012 he pulled out. And I think as well this goes say for women that women don't put themselves forward enough for things. So when he pulled out I was kind of panicking okay this event has to go ahead like I've put so much work into it so who am I going to get? And then I just kind of said Do you know what I'm actually going to put myself forward I'm going to put myself onto this panel. So I was on this panel with Sherry Blair Tony Blair's wife mm. and then other legal professionals um, 
who just, I suppose, came from a completely different background to me, um, just very privileged, yeah. etc. So anyway, I said to myself, okay, how am I going to work it on that particular day? Am I going to, on this panel, come across as a person who knows everything about law and just keep talking, talking, talking about law? Or am I going to just let these other panellists talk and when it comes time to use my voice wisely, I'll speak then? So I kind of went for the latter. Mm. And so the last kind of question on the day was um, in the public sector, we have a quota to hire people with disabilities. So um, it was, it's 3%. I think it's gone up to 6% now. But um, should we have that quota in the private sector that certain companies have to hire people with disabilities? And this Spanish lawyer anyway stood, stands up in the audience when that question was put out. No, I don't think we should hire people with disabilities. They wave a white flag. They don't do a good job. I've had people work with me who have disabilities and they haven't done a good job. So I was kind of sitting there and I was thinking to myself, OK, this conference cannot end now on this note. Mm. I've put too much work into this. Um, so it was at that moment I just became a different person. Like this girl who stayed quiet all day long yeah. became a different person. And um, it was at that moment that I used my voice wisely. And that's why I try and encourage other people to do use your voice wisely. And um, I made sure that everybody leaving that room that day did not have the impression, a negative impression of disability. Because I showed that, yes, that's your experience of one Spanish legal trainee solicitor. Mm -hmm. But like myself and other people with disabilities have worked hard throughout our life and maybe had we had more support, then we'd be able to get places um, quicker. Um, but I suppose you have to realise that you, that's only one experience. Don't paint everybody with the same brush. Yeah, it was great self-awareness and the personal skills there. And you could point, like the loudest person in the room doesn't always, you know, make the best points and you buy your time. And then you, you know, you're, you're waiting for it to come in with something really relevant and powerful. And it seems like it went down really well. Yeah, well, I think for me that in life, if you know what your values are in life, then like I've been in a lot of situations where decision making can be tough as in what to do and all that. But I think if you're very clear on your values, then like and you know what your values are if something triggers you. So like one of my values would be inclusion and equality. So I was triggered by what he was saying in the audience. So obviously then that is one of my values. Another one of my values in life would be um, adventure. So like, and that comes across true, like my running, my speaking allows me to travel the world. Mm. And so therefore adventure is one of my values. Achievement would be another one of my values. So I'm the type of person where I just don't really compare myself to others, but I try and be that 1% better tomorrow than what I am today. It's not always easy. It can be very difficult. I can have a lot of days where I'm down. I'm just just not on form. And I just say to myself, okay, I'm going to allow myself go through this now. I, like I'm human. I'm going to experience these emotions. But like I then say to myself, okay, right, Sinead, 
you've went through the emotions now the following day you have to snap out of this yeah. because the world is still moving mm. and nobody's going to do any of this for you like yeah. if you want to get places you have to kind of be taking the action are and you still a solicitor today or are you doing I'm it? I'm not practicing as a solicitor at the moment no. public is all speaking public. yeah speaking and running so running. Um, I suppose my lifestyle probably doesn't allow me yeah. be practicing as a solicitor nine to five yeah. like it um, I suppose like maybe uh, like if a solicitor company wants somebody to be flexible, then so be it. But my lifestyle doesn't fully allow it at the moment. Like. Tell us about your two Guinness World Records. So I have a Guinness World Record for furthest distance for any female on a treadmill in 12 hours. So that's 130.5. Any breaks? There. Um, you get off to go to the toilet, have something to eat. How does it work? So the thing is that the treadmill would only actually run for four hours. So whether I wanted it to stop, <laughs> it, it had to stop after four hours. So um, so then you see the <laughs> clock is the clock is still ticking. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you can't say, okay, the treadmill is stopping, I'm going to stop time now. The clock still ticks. So then you're under pressure then to make up those few seconds or whatever. Because yeah. like, um, and then, uh, so for that first, at the four hours, I said to myself, okay, because the treadmill has to be recalibrated or rebooted now, I'll go to the bathroom. So literally in the preparation of training for the treadmill record, I practiced how long it would take me to get off the treadmill to get into the bathroom basically go toilet don't flush toilet hands under the hygiene thing and basically back out just let my team flush the toilet for me um it's because every second counts and then you're back out so then in the second four hours so when it was coming to eight hours i kept looking forward that was a big thing now for me that the treadmill was stopping at eight hours and that I was going to get a break then so I kept telling myself the self-talk in my head was like oh you're getting a break you're getting a break and it was like nearly like you're getting a three-hour break but really in reality you're only like getting three seconds mm -hmm. but um or three minute or maybe 30 seconds or so but when it came to eight hours anyway I decided not to go to the toilet or anything. And while they were trying to restart the treadmill, I kept jogging on the spot. And my team were thinking like, Sinead, you're absolutely mad. Like the tread <laughs> this distance that you're doing isn't being counted because the treadmill is restarting. Yeah. And the reason why I kept running on the spot is because I didn't want to become comfortable. Because yeah. I knew if I became comfortable, the mind would automatically say, sure, you're grand now. Like, why would you want to start running again? Yeah. Like, no point to start running again. So I just wanted to stay in that state of, look, this will all be over in four hours. So when I went onto the treadmill, it's very daunting to say to yourself, I'm standing on a treadmill now for 12 hours and I have to run at a particular pace. Like, cause it all came down to the pace. Like, so, um, cause like, I kind of feel anybody could go on a treadmill for 12 hours at their own pace. Yeah. But, um, when you know you have to stick to a pace to break the record. So, um, what kind of pace have you got the treadmill set to? So, or does it go up the, and down? yeah, so for the record, we had it at 10.8, but I was more or less, say, running at maybe 11 or 11.1 to make up the break of, um, of the at the four hour mark of restarting the treadmill and the eight hour mark to restart the treadmill. So, that was like probably seven kilometers an hour. How does it work then having the Guinness World Records come over and yeah. what's the setup yeah. like? So then um, 
Guinness World Record adjudicator, if you're willing to pay that, which is extremely expensive, that person can come oh, over. expensive, can you um, say? 10,000 euros expensive. Yeah. So um, he come over and if you get the record, he'll actually have the record printed and everything like that with your name on it when he comes over. And in a kind of way, like if you don't do it, he'll just take the record away with him and then dump it or mm. destroy it or do whatever. But he comes over with the record and um, and then monitors it and looks at video footage and looks at witness statements. There's a lot of them in that goes with it. And like, I suffer from self-doubt sometimes. Like everybody say, oh, you're very positive, you're very motivated, but like I'm human and I do suffer with self-doubt. And the treadmill record was to go ahead on the Monday. And on the previous Thursday, I looked up the girl who had the record and she had all these um, achievements listed beside her name. And um, so then on the Thursday, I just became overwhelmed with all that. And I said, like, she has no disability mm. and she's all these achievements. How can I break her record I can't break her record so no point in attempting it um, so then I rang my run coach on the Thursday and I said look I know everything's set up now for Monday but I'm actually not doing it and he said why are you not doing it I was like oh because I looked at this girl and she has too many records and I just can't compete with that and he kind of tried to bring me back down to earth and he was like look Sinead focus on yourself focus on your own strengths like when you're out running you have a guide runner so you can't listen to music. On the treadmill, you're going to be able to listen to music for 12 hours. That's a luxury for you. So focus on your strengths, focus on how it's going to be different. And I remember he kind of got me into a frame of mind that like, if I didn't do it, I would always be wondering what it, yeah. and I think as well that like, that isn't it better to try and fail and experience that failure than not try at all? Uh, you could say cost you nothing to try, but it cost no 10 grand to try. <laughs> so, well, I had a sponsor, thankfully, but, yeah. um, and I think you're the average of the five people you surround yourself with. Yeah. And like having that, sometimes for belief in yourself, you need other people to believe in you. And my run coach believed in me. Mm. So that's what got me on the treadmill. And, um, yeah, I just, I suppose in, when in come that last hour, um, from hour 11 to hour 12, like I, all that I kept thinking in my mind was, um, do not mess this up. Do not mess this up. I couldn't tell you who was in the room that uh, in between hour 11 and 12, there could be some people there now and they'd be showboating and yeah, like yeah. looking around and who's there and running fast or whatever. I just kept saying, because if I came off, if I say gripped the handlebars or if I came off the treadmill just by mistake because of maybe turning around, um, then I'm, I'm disqualified then because of holding the handlebars. Um, and so I said to myself, do not mess this up now. Do not show boat. Just it's just it one done. more hour. Get the job done. So I suppose that's what kind of just it was just me in the treadmill, even though I was in a room full packed with everybody. And uh, I remember at the end of the treadmill then, because it was done in the Clayton Hotel um, in Dublin, the staff had a bottle of champagne ready um, for when I came off it. And I was like, I can't actually drink any more fluid. I actually just can't. 
because um, like when you're drinking water from for a whole yeah. 12 hours the last thing you want is more liquid a steak you should have given you. <laughs> so, but anyway the team my, the team around me they 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 definitely drank the champagne so this that's a one Guinness record and then the second then is for doing seven marathons seven continents seven days which is um, six days nine hours so I went to Antarctica um, Antarctica Antarctica, Chile. Chile, yeah. Antarctica, Chile, Chile, Miami, Madrid, Marrakesh, Dubai. Right, and Sydney. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yes, that's some going. Do you want to explain remember. to people how how you actually get to... So seven. it was, yeah, it was a chartered plane yeah. and there was 33 athletes on, the, on it. And I suppose myself and another girl, we would have been seen as the inspirational athletes. So she was... Um, dealing with brain cancer for the last 10 years. So I had my disability. Then there was other athletes there doing it for charity. There was other athletes there doing it for their own reasons. Athletes there because they just wanted to basically do seven marathons, seven continents, seven days. So um, we were all there for different reasons. And there was three sportsmanship awards, um, $15,000, $10,000 and $5,000. And you had to write down like... Um, Oh, the three athletes who you believe should get it. And I, the other athletes nominated me to get the $10,000. And I suppose rather than keep it, I gave it to the Irish Sky Dogs because I suppose that has been instilled in me from a very young age. It's important to give back to society. Yeah, yeah, so I yeah. gave it to the Irish Sky Dogs. That's beautiful. Mm. You didn't, forget, you didn't forget them, like? Yeah, I, well, I've done a lot of charity work all throughout my life. So. Have you done a lot for the Irish Guide Dogs? Have I what? Done a lot of charity for yeah, so Have you like, met Roy Keane? Yeah. Have you? Yeah. Oh, nice. So, you never um, get him for the podcast for us, do you? <laughs> I'll, say, I'll say to the Guide Dogs to try and get him to yeah. come on. Do, do, do. David, what's your life like now? I know you're carrying an injury at the moment. Yeah, so basically I've this foot um, thing on me at the moment and um, foot boot because I had an accident there last August woman on a knee bike crashed into my back so I've been dealing with a foot injury since then but um, I suppose my goals going forward would be to try and get to the Paralympic marathon next year um, because all my running to date has been com competing against able-bodied so like I've represented Ireland at world level European level um, in 24 hour running so I never knew 24 hour running existed until a few years ago and um, how that works is basically in 24 hours all the athletes go out and they all run and whoever completes the furthest distance in the 24 hours wins I've won or I've come second female in three Tw uh, three 12 hour races and I remember at my first 12 hour race um, I went there and I could hear somebody say Asher God love us look at the poor blind girl and I heard this guy say that and I just I just yeah. like went mad with that comment so I went to go over to say something and my few friends that was around me at the time running guides etc said look let your actions do the talking. Mm. Um, and so my actions was that I ended up on the podium, second female. And in that race, I was the only person with a disability. And what I learned, as I was telling you earlier, is that men don't like being beaten by a girl and they definitely don't like being beaten by a blind girl. Mm. And um, yeah, so that person made it very well known that they just 
weren't happy that I beat them in that race. You've never, ever left your disability, yet you don't, like, you're after accomplishing so much. You well, became a solicitor. You've done seven marathons in seven, seven continents in seven days. Like, that for me is, oh, and then to, to run for 12 hours straight, it's like you're a superhuman human yeah. being, if yeah. that makes sense. Well, with, with, like you can classify it as a disability, our, our people can, but I look at it as probably one of your biggest strengths because it's, it's, it's one of these things that growing up, you were told you can't do this, you can't do that, and you can't do the other. But you said, no, I can't. Yeah. And I can. Well, I've advocated on a daily basis, not only for myself, but others. And like I've got policy changed and like running has brought me to many highs in my life, but it has also brought me to many lows. So I, I was explaining how I got to represent Ireland at 24 hour or European and World Championship. And I remember back in um, I'll just tell you this story fast. I'll try and summarise yeah. it. But um, I set myself the goal to get onto the Irish team and it was competing against all able-bodied. And to get onto the Irish team, a female has to get above 200 kilometres in a... 200 kilometres are above in a 24-hour race. So in April 2019, I got that at a race in the UK. I got 204.6 kilometres in a 24-hour race. Came second female, came fourth overall. So I thought I was going to be selected to represent Ireland at this 24-hour World Championship, which was going to be going ahead in Albi, France. So in the July 2019, I expected my name on the Athletics Ireland website wasn't there. I questioned Athletics Ireland as to why my name wasn't there. They said, um, oh, well, we can't select you because the IAU, International Association of Ultra Running, has stated that you're breaching an IAAF rule, which states that no athlete is allowed outside assistance. My guide runner was deemed as outside assistance. So they said that um, they said that I would have an unfair advantage to fully sighted runners by using my guide runner. So I thought to myself... He's not trying up in his fucking back at all, like, Jesus Christ. So I, an unfair advantage, do you think? So I said to them, that's fine. If you feel that I have an unfair advantage to fully sighted runners, what we'll do is we'll make all the fully sighted runners wear a blindfold and then we're all on an equal par. Mm. But anyway, they didn't want to go with that option. So <laughs> I learned... Like, I learn more about law through my own personal experience yeah. than through law books. So straight away into the sports law textbooks to see, OK, how am I going to get through this? And um, so I basically had to take a legal case against them, against the IAU, and uh, which cost well in excess of... Um, thousands a lot of money and like not everybody has that money to take and I was saying to myself like why am I actually taking this legal case and I'm taking it because I believe in equality I believe in inclusion and what they're doing to me is wrong and at that time though I checked kept trying to keep myself positive. I kept trying to hold on to hope because I think when you're in a very dark place if you can hold on to hope that can yeah. get you through. And so I just kept holding on to the hope that I would be on the team. And um, 
And even I had to be making decisions with solicitors and barristers at 1am in the morning and all of this. And the other side had to give a decision on the Wednesday by 5pm whether I was going to be allowed on the team. And the Irish team were flying out on the Thursday morning. The other side came um, uh, with their decision at 459 on the Wednesday to state that I could go out. But sure, at that stage, it was going to be too late for me to get a flight. So preparation, I had booked my flight the weekend before. But it just like that court case and that struggle to get on the team, all because I had a disability, which should have never, ever been an issue, that that really brought me to a low place in my life, like really, really low place in my life. And I suppose I just like simple tasks every day of, I don't know, just very, very simple tasks. Like my achievement back then in 2019, October 2019, when trying to fight that legal case was like actually getting up and getting dressed. Like that was a big day for me. And um, like, I suppose if I was to say to myself, like, why do I keep fighting and what gets me through? It's about having hope. And I remind myself of what my surname means. So my surname is Cain. And when you look up the meaning of the name Cain, the meaning of Cain is little battler. Yeah. So I kind of feel like that I'm a little battler yeah. and um, fighting on. Yeah, so yeah. like, yeah, running has brought me to high, but that, that, advocating for yeah. myself during that court case was difficult. You know, to, to close out the podcast, have you any advice for somebody that might be struggling with a disability or, or otherwise yeah. that might be lacking motivation or just stuck in a rut or in a dark place and is trying to get out of it? Have you any words of wisdom? I think that like start small and try and like um, just it's the whole thing about the whole um, eating of the elephant. Just try and break it down into smaller chunks um, try and find something in the day to do that makes you feel productive. Like I think for me, resilience is a lot about confidence. Um, like when we encounter setbacks, it's a knock of our confidence. So if you can try and find ways to build your confidence for me as well, movement is so important like everybody talks about exercise but if you reframe it and talk about okay movement how much movement have I done today getting outside like and even say with running like everybody says oh you must love running but sometimes I hate going for a run but it's the action like motivation doesn't come the motivation it's the action comes first then the motivation will come yeah. um, so that's what I'd say. Start small, try and get outside, get moving. It really helps the head and find things that build your confidence. Surround yourself with supportive people that want to build you up. It's interesting you said about the action has to come and then the motivation will follow. Because in recovery, we have a saying, you know, for people that are maybe hesitant or tensive about going to self-help meetings, which are very important, mm -hmm. There's a saying, like, if you bring your body, the mind will follow eventually. Or you put yourself in the seas in spite of yourself, and eventually you'll realise that that's where you should be and it won't yeah. be such a task, you know? Yeah. But the, ten the tennis ball will move if you move, it will roll if you roll it. Exactly. Uh, otherwise, it's going to stand still. Yeah, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. Yeah. Really, thanks, Million. Definitely so one much. of the most inspiring people I've ever met. 100%. Yeah. Me too.
Definitely, 100 million percent. And, and Stay I just, visionary, not I, I was listening to your uh, bit of advice there because I recently started jogging as well and I'm trying to get into the jogging scene. So I'm doing a 10K in the Cork City Marathon with my son uh, soon. And it was exactly what I'm trying to do, work my way up to a certain stage. And I had an injury a few weeks ago and, and I kind of had to say, all right, we'll, we'll get back. We'll get, we'll get whatever physio we need and get get back on the wagon because you can actually stop your little bit of a run as well you know your bit of motivation when you, an injury comes but I, I took it all on board you know every single bit of it and I'm going to make a go and build up my legs so I can uh, but even like that experience of running with your son yeah the bond that obviously is being created yeah. between the two of you through the action of running. Will I tell so. you, will I tell you, we went over a jog last night, the two of us, and I think we'd done about eight kilometres, eight and a half kilometres, and he turned around to me. He was a bit ahead of me. He's a thick kid. And he turns around and he shouts back and he says, Dad, are you all right? Am I going too fast for you? <laughs> you know, and I says, no, you're fine. You're grounded. Yeah. <laughs> I says, you're fine. He says, grand, grand, I'll keep it at this pace, you know. Yeah, and it was great. Say to him, it's fine to show me up yeah. in training, just don't show me up in the day. <laughs> he caught me then on Baker's Hill, James. You know, Baker's Hill, Baker's Hill is like, it's just like pinking up into the ceiling. It's like that. Um, I had to walk up as I couldn't, uh, calves, the calves were so tight. It, it, the stretching them, you know, going up was too damaging. But listen, I just want to say thank you so much for coming on. Well, you're being an extremely story. inspiring role model. Thank you. Going out running with your child. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thanks, Ned. See everybody next week. God bless, lads. Bye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.